you don't know, I'm one of the guys on staff here around our student ministry department. Uh, so you might have noticed I'm not Daryl or Darwin. Um, in fact, I'm not sure when the last time was someone preached from this pulpit that didn't have a name starting with D. But anyways, I might do things just a little bit differently this morning than those guys, uh, but I strongly believe God has a powerful word for us today, and I'm really, really excited to get going. So with that said, if you're okay with that, would you join me in prayer real quick? Father, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to be here, to hear your word. Uh, I just pray you'd open our hearts, Lord, to hear you speaking to us today through your word. God, you are powerful and active, and we love you. God, I just pray, would you be uh, with me, with my words, and yours be one. Would I, would I faithfully proclaim your message this morning? I ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said? So when I was back uh, in college in California, I had a professor who really enjoyed deconstructing students' names. Uh, he had this amazing gift to not only like parse out the translation from whatever European language it came from, but also to take that and give it kind of a spiritual twist, a spiritual meaning. And so you'd have kids who you know do whatever, pray for class or present, and then they find out that their their last name means you know, warrior or uh, the one who sows life or God's favorite or something along those lines. And, and so having n- never truly known what Trefsker means, which is my last name. You know, I was, I was really excited. I can't wait to find out not only what it means, but, you know, as a precocious 20-year-old, I wanted to find out how it spoke about God's plan for my life as well. So when my day comes, I go up and I present, and I go sit down, and I'm waiting to hear him say, oh, Trefsker, that's an interesting name, strong and German, and has all these whatever special meanings with it. And I sit down, and, and there, he doesn't say anything, and I'm just, just waiting. And someone else in class goes, hey, you know, he's like moving on. They're like, hey, what about... Uh, what, what about Spencer's you know, last name? And he, he looks and he kind of has this pained look on his face and he just sits there for a second. He goes, why don't you come talk to me after class? <laughs> and that's it. So not exactly what I was hoping for, but I'm like, yeah, maybe he doesn't want to embarrass kids with boring last names because mine's so great. So that's probably <laughs> what's happening here. It's going to be fine. So I go out to him after class and he looks at me and he goes, oh, yeah, it's like, I had a really hard time figuring out Trefsker, so I finally just looked it up on Wikipedia, and he goes, why don't you just go home and do that yourself? That's all, that's all I got. So now I'm concerned, right? Why is there all this mystery? But it doesn't take me long to figure it out. I go online, I'm like, great, and like, how can I not look it up now? And I go and I check it out, and loosely translated in German, Trefsker, I find out, means uh, a pernicious and hard-to-kill weed. Okay? So much for inspiring, right? I tell you that to say that there's something powerful about a name. Our names, whether we like it or not, say something about us. And at the very least, they say something about where we come from. And while they're somewhat important to us today in the ancient world, names are even more essential in understanding who somebody's identity was. So with that said, if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. If not, the words will be on the screens. As most of you know, we're on a year-long series through John. Uh, but before we get to today's passage, I want to unpack some really important background. So, Exodus chapter 33, we're going to start reading in verse 18. So, Moses is talking to God. Moses says this. He said, Now show me your glory. Show me your essence. Show me who you are. And the Lord said back, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. 
For God to reveal his name to Moses means for God to reveal his very nature to him. And this is really important because God's name is unique. If you notice, the word Lord, if you're reading in the Bible, is, is in all caps. And that's to tell us that that's not a title, but it's, a, it's God's personal name. In Hebrew, it's Yahweh, which means I am. God has a unique name. He doesn't have a name like you or I. His name is a statement about who he is. His name is I am, or I am who I am. If you're taking notes this morning, go ahead and write that down. Let's jump back in verse 20. But he said, God speaking, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. Or in other translations, you can say the place where I just was. But my face must not be seen. Here's what we need to know from this passage. When we look at how God chose to reveal himself to Moses, when Moses says, show me your glory, God does what? God passes by Moses. God passes by in order to show who he is. He says it three times in this section. God passed by Moses, and Moses could only see God's back or the place where God just was because Moses, no man at this time, can see God's face and live. Now, if you still have a Bible with you, turn with me to the right in your Bibles to Job chapter 9, or if you're new to the Bible, the book of Job, since how would you know the difference? Um, We're going to quickly look at Job chapter 9 while you're turning there. If you haven't spent much time in the book of Job, it is amazing. And we usually only focus on three chapters. It's a 42-chapter book. It's written like a play. So think Shakespeare, but with a few cameos of Satan and more camels. Um, it's really, it's, it's awesome. It's really great. So we're going to jump in Job chapter 9. Job is talking to his friends about God, and he says this in verse 1. But how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound. His power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes the pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens, and pay attention to this, he treads on the waves of the sea. That last phrase can also be translated, he walks upon the waters. Believe it or not, that's actually a common descriptor of God in the Old Testament. We see it again in Psalm 77, 19. It says, your path, speaking of God, led through the sea, your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. In the Old Testament, this is how you know it's God. He walks upon the waters. So with all that said, let's jump to our passage for today in John chapter 6. We're going to check out verse 16. Last week, if you remember, we left off with the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men plus women and children. And now we find Jesus up on a mountain by himself while his disciples have gone down to the Sea of Galilee. So let's pick up the story, verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake 
where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus had not yet joined them. So this story, as you may know, occurs in both Mark, Matthew, and John. And Mark gives us the detail that the disciples went down to the boat because Jesus told them to. He commanded them, go ahead of me to the boat and get on the lake. And I know if I were those guys, and I just saw Jesus feed the entire south end zone at Mile High with a little kid's lunchbox, <laughs> I'd do anything he said, right? Whatever you say, I'll, like, how can, I, how can I argue with you? But unfortunately for them, things don't go quite as planned. This trip across the lake should have been pretty quick. It's, it's not very long, and in fact, it's short enough they might have assumed Jesus was just going to walk around the outside and meet him by morning on the other side. But now it's the middle of the night, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. Let's continue reading. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. Mark's gospel here uses the phrase Jesus passing by the boat instead of approaching. And when we see that, it should immediately cause us to remember Exodus 33, God passing by Moses to show his glory. And in the ancient world, you have to understand the sea is a symbolic place. It's symbolic of chaos and evil. The sea represents to the Jewish mind everything evil and corrupt and terrifying in the world. It's sort of like uh, the MTV of the 1980s, if you were back then when that came out. So what I think is so interesting here is that the disciples, literally hours after seeing Jesus take a Jimmy John sandwich and feed most of the Pepsi Center with it, is they see him walking on the sea towards them, and they don't even recognize him. That should blow your minds a little bit. They don't even recognize him. So then what happens? Verse 20. But he said to them, It is I. Pay attention to that. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. That phrase, it is I, is packed with meaning. We're going to get back to that in just a second. But first, I'm looking for hands here. Has anyone else here ever done this? Have you ever left home, gone all the way to work, and sat down at your desk and said, did I leave the garage door wide open? Has anyone else ever done that? Yeah, yeah, keep them up. Right, you start thinking, should I go back? Like, should I, should I check just to make sure? Right, my garage door could be wide open, but you know, what, if, what if I didn't shut it? What if I did shut it and it's a waste of time? Maybe I'll just call the neighbor and have her check, but boy, I remember last time she was over, she really liked my new Vitamix blender. I'm not sure <laughs> I want to have her come back, right? So on and on we go, right? We're, it's amazing. Like, how does something like that, so basic and so essential, as shutting the front door, closing the garage door behind us, like how does that happen right in front of our eyes? I think it's pretty simple. It's familiar. When it comes to passages like this, where most of us have heard it before at least a few times, it's tempting for us to tune out and start wondering where we're heading for lunch or what the score of the game is. Go Broncos. So my challenge is to you this morning, don't tune out because you feel like you've heard this before. God is speaking to us right now. 
to you and to me. Let's not miss what's right in front of our face because it's familiar. So first, if you're taking notes today, write this down. If you're not taking notes, go ahead and write this down. (laughs) This is a story about God. Or more precisely, this is a story about the divinity of Jesus. John, the author, all throughout his gospel, as we've seen in this entire series, is trying to show us who Jesus is. And instead of flat out just saying it, John over and over shows Jesus doing things that only God can do. How did God choose to reveal himself to Moses in Exodus? He passed by, right? How does Jesus choose to reveal himself to his disciples? He passes by, walking on the water, something only God can do. What's happening here, and this is so critical, is that Jesus is revealing God to his disciples by revealing himself. Jesus is revealing God to his disciples by revealing himself. That phrase, it is I, in Greek, literally means, the words are ego, me. So say that with me. Ego, me. That was weak. We're going to do that again. All right, with me. Ego, me. All right, you guys are scholars now. In Greek, those two words literally mean I am. And it's, it's accurate to translate it, it is I. And it's, it's Jesus' way of saying, hey guys, it's me. But it's also a reference to his identity. He's also saying, I am God. Guys, I am Yahweh. I am God's divine name. And again, what's so interesting to me is that his disciples don't know it's him when they see him walking towards them on the lake. And as I was thinking about this this week, about why why is that, I think perhaps, and I'm wondering this, is it perhaps because Jesus looked different than the God they were expecting? We saw how last week's passage ended, right? Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 men plus women and children, and immediately everyone wants to take Jesus and make him by force their king because that's the Messiah and the God that they were expecting, But what does Jesus do? Jesus sneaks away. He goes up on a mountain by himself to be alone with God. What happens so often in our culture and in my heart and in our churches is that we start with what we think God is like and then we make decisions about Jesus based upon how he fits into our expectations of God. John and the other New Testament authors do the opposite. They see Jesus as God finally revealed to us. Unlike what happened in Exodus 33 where Moses cannot see the face of God, we finally can. We can finally see God in focus. And what we see is Jesus. Jesus is God speaking in a language that we can understand to you and to me. And all throughout, not just his life, but today in our lives, Jesus is constantly challenging our presuppositions about who God is. Jesus does not fit into the box that you and I want to put him in. And the fact of the matter is this. No matter how much we read or study or talk about God, you and I are bound to be wrong about some things. And here's how we know. Jesus starts to look a lot like you and me. 
When the God you follow starts to agree with you on everything, from where you spend your money to who you vote for to who you love and accept as an equal, when the God you follow stops doing things that shock or surprise or confuse you, chances are God you're following may not be the God of the Bible anymore. Jesus is not a warm, fuzzy feeling that we get in church He's not a bunch of religious good ideas. He's not a system. He's not a theology. As silly as it might sound to say, Jesus is a real historical person who lived, went to the cross for you and for me, died, rose again, and now sits enthroned over the universe as king. Jesus was and is a real living, breathing person who calls us by name. Are you letting Jesus challenge your assumptions about who God is? Second, if you're taking notes, this is a story about us. Have you ever felt like the disciples rowing for hours and hours all through the night against the waves and against the wind and getting absolutely nowhere? Have you ever felt like you're all alone and God's away, up on a mountain, far from your trouble? He's cold. He's distant, he's unconcerned, and you're alone in the boat trying as hard as you can just to stay afloat. Have you ever felt discouraged, like you set out in faith, like, I know for sure God told me to go here, and I'm going to follow you, and then you look down a couple hours or a couple weeks or a couple months later, and you say, this isn't going well at all. Maybe I should have stayed on shore and just not listened to him. Have you ever felt scared? Disciples in this story, they're they're scared. John says they're terrified. Have you ever been like them, looked forward out towards the horizon to see what's coming and been more scared than you were before? Have you ever felt blown off course like the winds of life couldn't possibly be more directly against you? If the answer to any of these is yes, keep rowing. Keep rowing. God has not left you in the storm. When I was 21, my life changed dramatically. And no, parents, this isn't going where you're afraid it is. I got married that year to the absolute love of my life. But it seemed like just about everything else worked against me. We had to live in a small 330-square-foot apartment with no mattress, We worked six jobs between the two of us from 8 a.m. to midnight. We were trying to graduate college and start looking for where to go next in life with no money and no job offers. My parents split up, and I fought two serious illnesses that had me worried I might not see my first wedding anniversary. That year was a grind. But in the midst of that season of life, God was so good to us and so real, and so present. And just like the disciples, I want God to come down and take me out of the storm. Like, hey, I know what you can do. Like, let's teleport out of here. Thank you very much. But instead, Jesus reveals God to his followers in the storm, right in the middle of the sea, Now, we would like to think, and they even more than us, that you find God in isolation, in contemplation, up on a mountain with your camelback and your moleskin and barely enough oxygen to keep breathing 
here in Colorado, right? But instead, Jesus also comes to us right in the middle of our storms. And if that's you, and you're rowing, and you're sweating, and you're toiling, and you feel like you're going nowhere, keep your eyes up. Because God is right there with you. Brothers and sisters of South Suburban, our hope in this life is not that we meet with good fortune or that everything goes according to our plan or that every step of our life is in God's perfect will. No, our hope in this life is that Jesus can walk on water. Because if Jesus can come down from the mountain in the middle of the storm and come walking to us on the sea. Jesus can be with us in anything and anywhere. He can be working in the middle of our family crisis. He can be bringing good out of divorce. He can be working in the diagnosis, in the abuse, in the unemployment, in failure, disappointment, addiction. Jesus can bring good out of anything. All we have to do is let him into our boat. To recap the story, right? Jesus sends the disciples out on the lake before him. says, go, I'll meet up with you later. And they go out there following God's will. And the next thing they know, a trip that should have been an hour and a half has now taken all night. Mark uses the Greek word for torture to describe the rowing that they're going through over and over again, getting nowhere. The waves and the wind are beating on them. They're not sure they're going to live. And then Jesus comes. And when he comes, he says two things. He says, it is I, by saying, I'm God. And then he says, I'm here. I'm here with you. Don't be afraid. If you let Jesus pass by, then good luck to you. But if you let him in, immediately, as we see in the text, they show up on dry land, right, where they were headed the first place. Some of us in here today, whether it's for the first time or the 15th time, need to let Jesus into our boat, or maybe let him back into our boat. Because when we look around, some of us only see darkness and wind and waves, and we need help. If Jesus is who he says he is, take heart. Because God does not only reveal himself on the mountaintop and thank God for those times, but he also reveals himself in the storms. God is at work in all of your life, not just in the good, but also in the bad. Be encouraged and maybe be challenged because our God Our God walks on water. Let's pray. Jesus, you're amazing. God, we stand and we look at who you are, and God, all we can do is worship. Father, thank you so much for being a God who doesn't leave us, who doesn't stay on the mountain and help us and just let us figure out our problems on our own. God, you come to us in our storms, and you say, I'm here, and I'm God. Lord, would you speak to us in our hearts as we respond in worship? Would your spirit fall in this place? God, we need you. Would you come into this place? Would you fill us with joy and comfort? We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.